chapter 13, verses 23 through 30. Nehemiah 13, 23 through 30. Now we're reading from the New King James Version. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but both spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did did Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of those sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I drove him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites for each to his service. Some years ago, a young man went to a candy store to buy a sweet treat for a lady that he would be uh, taking on a date later that evening. And upon entering the candy store, the store owner suggested that he get a chocolate because you can't go wrong with a box of chocolate. Well, upon hearing that, the young man said, well, let me get three boxes of chocolate. I want one one medium and one large box. The store owner, why do you need three boxes of chocolate? And the young man went on to explain that choose which box to give the young lady based on how the date goes. At the end of all she does is stick out her hand for a handshake. She's going to get the small box of chocolates. If, on the other hand, she gives him a hug at the end of the night, he will give her the medium box of chocolates. And if she gives him a big kiss at the end of the evening, he would give her the large box of chocolates. So the, the young man just his box of chocolates and left and went to the young lady's house. He had been invited ahead of time to have dinner with her family before they left to go to the movies. And upon sitting at the table, he was asked to lead the prayer. And he led this long, elaborate, wordy prayer that was so deep and so the young lady was brought to tears. And when he finished, she turned to him and said, I didn't know you were so spiritual. He turned and said, I didn't know your dad owned a candy store. <laughs> and the point of that story is this. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we have to do a little repair work, a little maintenance before we can move forward. And as we approach the last chapter of Nehemiah, which in fact will lead us into the last lesson in this series where we've been studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, see that Nehemiah had a little bit of maintenance before everything was complete. According to Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, Nehemiah had to return to Persia after serving as governor for 12 years. And then after an unspecified amount of time, he requested permission from the king to return once again. 
And when he returned to Jerusalem, he discovered that, that although the, the physical of the temple and the physical walls of the city were still and the renovations were still good, he discovered that the renovations, the spiritual renovations, the renovations of the people's hearts and minds had decayed. They had not been maintained. And so throughout chapter 13 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah recounts his final renovations. The final maintenance issues he had to tackle upon his return to Jerusalem. And there are three specific issues that Nehemiah had to address before his construction project was ultimately complete. And I want to focus on those today because they are maintenance issues that you and I still need to focus upon. The first thing, the first maintenance issue Nehemiah had to deal with was the issue of purity. And Nehemiah challenged the people to maintain their purity. Now let me explain how this plays out in the text. Look at Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 4 and 5. Here's what you discover. Now before this, before Nehemiah, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Now skip down half of it. And he says, And I heard I should have done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the, there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So here's what's happening. Eliashib, which scholars to believe, believe to be a one we talked about weeks ago who worked on the wall of Jerusalem, who helped rebuild this sheep gate next to the temple, who was high priest at the time. And this is actually a different Eliashib. This guy allowed someone to take up residence inside the temple complex. He gave someone a room to live in inside the temple. The first issue with that is that the temple is not a house for man. The temple is the house of God. In fact, that is, terminology is used 50-plus times in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, four of which appear right here in Nehemiah chapter 13. It's the house of God, not the house of man. It's not a place for a man to take up residence. So it's a desecration to the use of this space, which was intended to house products that would be used in the service of the temple as well as the support of the priests and Levites. It's a des desecration of its purpose for to be living in the temple. Someone to have a room in the temple. And while this use of space is enough of a crime to warrant Nehemiah's anger, it's whom this space was given to that made it even more egregious. Because according to Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 5, Eliashib gave this space to Tobiah. Now that name might sound familiar to you, because he's come up in this study a couple of times. Tobiah figured prominently as one of the chief opponents of Jerusalem's walls in the days of Nehemiah. He mocked the construction process by saying the wall would fall if a fox jumped on it in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 3. He was responsible for 
hiring a prophet to prophesy against Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 12. And he sent letters to Nehemiah in order to make Nehemiah afraid in verse 19. And though, although Nehemiah's, I mean, excuse me, although Tobiah's opposition to the wall is reason enough not to cooperate with him, the main reason is because he's an Ammonite. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10 calls him Ammonite. This means that he's not a descendant of Israel. This means he is not a Jew. It means that he was of a particular nationality that Mosaic law expressly excluded in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 3. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 verses 3 through 6, we find out that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. The reason it's were from the assembly of is they hired Balaam to curse the nation of Israel during the promised land, rather than assist in that journey. And this exclusion, this exclusion included, if you notice in verse, included not seeking their peace or their prosperity forever. So Tobiah should have never received such God's people because God and his people's actions to distance themselves from Ammonites. With this. One is two, it's disobeying all about relations with the, the Ammonites. And so no, Nehemiah told that the temples and the peoples compromised here. And he indicates that this failure of purity is a maintenance problem. And this is a maintenance that you and I need to constantly address as in our own individual life's construction projects. Throughout the Bible, we're warned that our relationships compromise our purity. Right here, the relationship who's not a god God worshiper, who's obedient to Mosaic law, the relationship people is compromising their purity. It has already compromised the temple's purity, and it's compromising their purity. And throughout Scripture, we're warned people we associate with can compromise our purity as well. Show you a of this isn't working. It is now. Okay. Thank you. Look at Proverbs chapter twelve, verse twenty-six. In Proverbs chapter twelve and verse twenty. By the way, I think I have to start over now. but the way of the wicked leads them astray. What Solomon is saying here is that we should be picky about who we befriend because it's very easy for those who are wicked to lead us astray. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 33, I want you to notice this passage as well. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's as blunt as you can be in Scripture. 
Paul's point is that the people with whom you associate can compromise you in some fashion. So the message of the Bible is that our relationships can heavily influence our lives. And that's why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. A yoke is an instrument used to link two animals together so they can pull the plow across the field in the same direction. And Paul's point is that you need to be conscious about who you're pairing yourself up with because it's going to influence the direction your life is headed. Nehemiah takes issue with the treatment of Tobiah the Ammonite because God's law had said, don't include the Ammonites in the assembly. And the whole reason for that exclusion policy was to protect God's people from the negative influence of a culture that didn't worship him. And so ultimately, when Nehemiah challenged the people to maintain purity, when he challenged the people to correct their relationship, their interaction with, their acceptance of, their special treatment of Tobiah, he's ultimately calling on them and challenging them to maintain the purity they've been called to possess. But that's just the first maintenance issue that Nehemiah has to address in this chapter. The second one appears in verses 15 through 18. If you'll look there with me, we'll find out that Nehemiah had to challenge the people to maintain obedience. Verse 15 of Nehemiah chapter 13. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them. If you skip down to verse 17, he continues by saying, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing? profaning the Sabbath. Did, your, did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing, bringing more wrath <coughs> excuse me, on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So Nehemiah discovers that the people were not keeping the fourth of the Ten Commandments, which is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The way they were to keep it holy was by not doing any work. But what Nehemiah found out was that some of the Jews were making things. They were treading the wine presses. They were transporting things, bringing in heaps of grain. And they were selling things. They were working on the day that they were not supposed to work. Now that doesn't seem like a big deal to you and me. Since the Sabbath law didn't carry over into the New Testament, it's hard for us to imagine a world in which it's morally wrong to be productive on Saturday. But you have to remember that this, this was a law prescribed by God, intentionally prescribed by God. It may not make much sense, much sense to us, but it was a matter of life and death for the Israelites. Exodus chapter 35 and verse 2 says, six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, 
holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. That's how serious they were to take this solemn day of rest. And Nehemiah arrived on the scene and found out that the Jews were not taking this law as seriously as they should be. So he took issue with the fact that they were picking which laws they would keep and which laws they wouldn't. They turned God's law into a buffet where they could pick and choose what they wanted and leave off the rest. And that's a maintenance issue that you and I need to constantly address as we work on our life's construction projects. Because isn't it true that even we have a tendency to pick and choose which of God's commands we're going to obey? All too often, we treat God's word like the buffet line at Golden Corral, don't we? We go in there and say, I'll take a helping of that love one another stuff, but I don't want any of that turn the other cheek stuff. Oh, I really like that thing he says about uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but don't give me any of that submitting to governing authorities. I can handle a little bit of that cheerful giver stuff, but I'd rather stay away from that not forsaking the assembly stuff. Oh, I'm good with a big old helping of that by grace you have been saved, but don't give me any of that except sexual immorality clause when it comes to marriage and divorce. We are very good at picking and choosing which laws we want to obey and which ones we want to discard. But that's not how it works. James chapter 2 and verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And the truth is that God's expectation for us is that we keep all his commandments. Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verse 29 and 30, that the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he goes on to say, if you add John chapter 14 and verse 15 to the equation, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments, plural. That means all of them, not the ones you want to keep, not the ones that are easy to keep, not the ones that you like the most, all of them. If I love God, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, then that love will manifest itself in my keeping of all his commandments, not just the ones I want to keep. So we need to consider that maintenance issue in our own lives. Are we picking and choosing? Are we treating God's word, God's commands, God's expectations like a buffet or are we treating them with the respect the sacredness the holiness that they deserve as his will if we go back to Nehemiah chapter 13 we'll find out that there's a third maintenance issue that he had to deal with not just addressing the people regarding their failure to maintain purity and maintain obedience, but also faith. Looking at verses 23 through 27, we'll see that Nehemiah challenged the people to maintain their faith. And this is unique. Look at the issue that comes up here in Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. 
And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God had made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? See, upon his return, Nehemiah found that some of the Jewish people had intermarried some of the people from other nationalities. If you go back to the book of Ezra and you look at chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra, the same issue happened there, and Ezra had to deal with it then. It's an ongoing, persistent problem. It's a maintenance issue. And this was a big deal because Mosaic law forbade intermarriage with foreigners in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 3. Look at that passage with me real quick. It's there that God declared, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Before anyone draws the conclusion that God is against interracial marriage, let me explain the purpose of this command. God, as the author of marriage, knows that marital relationships are very influential. That means that your spouse can sway your opinions and your values and your beliefs very easily. So to protect the Israelites from the possibility of being led away from their monotheistic faith through the influence of a spouse who did not share the same spiritual convictions, God instituted this law. So God instructed his people to marry only his people for the sole purpose of protecting their faith. And that means that God was not opposed to interracial marriage. It means that God was and is concerned about interfaith marriage because he doesn't want the faith of his people to be compromised. So Nehemiah took issue with the fact that some of the Jewish people were no longer protecting their faith from external influences through marriage relationships. And he indicates that this practice of interfaith marriage is a maintenance problem. And it's a maintenance issue that you and I need to constantly address as we work on our lives, construction projects as well. Now you may think I'm about to divert us into a conversation about who you marry, but I think it's a much bigger issue than that. I think it's an issue about how you protect your faith. We've already talked about relationships in this chapter. In this study today, we've already talked about relationships, so we don't need to go there again. Instead, let's talk about how you protect your faith. Because the way you protect your faith is the same way you protect your body. You have to consume a healthy diet and you have to exercise. Let's start with the diet analogy for a moment. During his temptation, Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's a dietary statement. He's indicating that our ultimate survival is contingent on spiritual sustenance, and he identifies God's word as the source of such sustenance. And that's ultimately what Paul is alluding to when he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, 
that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul is indirectly telling Timothy and us that a healthy or complete diet is contingent on the consumption of God's Word. But is it enough to just consume the correct diet? It's important, it's necessary, it's invaluable, but you can consume a particular diet and lose a good deal of weight, but without exercise, you may not convert that fat into muscle. So if you want to be healthy, you not only have to consume a healthy diet, but you also have to work out. And that's ultimately what James is alluding to when he wrote about the relationship between faith and works in James chapter 2, particularly verses 14 through 17 here. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James' point is that faith that is not being used, faith that is not being implemented, faith that is not being put into practice, faith that is not being exercised is a faith that is atrophying. Atrophy is the wasting away of a muscle due to underuse or neglect. And what we need to understand today is that atrophy is not limited to our physical muscles. It can happen to our spiritual muscles as well. And that's why James spends so much time talking about the relationship between faith and works. James understands that if your faith is never exercised, then your spiritual muscles will atrophy. Without faith, without works, your faith is dead. That's the terminology of atrophy. So when was the last time you exercised your faith? When was the last time you went into your room and shut the door and prayed to your Father who is in secret, as Jesus suggested in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 6? When was the last time you showed hospitality to another, as Peter taught in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9? When was the last time you washed another's feet, as Jesus directed in John chapter 13 and verse 14? When was the last time you forgave as the Lord has forgiven you, as Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13? When was the last time you went and made a disciple, as Jesus commanded in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19? That's just a small portion of the ways in which we exercise our faith. How much exercise have you gotten in the past week? How much exercise have you gotten in the past month? How much spiritual exercise have you engaged in this year? You know, in James chapter 2 and verse 19, James says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The reason I think James makes this unique statement about demons believing, immediately after he had just said, I will show you my faith by my works, is because if you don't exercise your faith, then you're no different than those demons. Demons who believe, 
But that belief is never put into practice. So Nehemiah arrives on the scene. And the people are not protecting their faith from the influence of those outside of it. For them, it was because they were marrying people that didn't share the same faith. And what I want us to consider is how we're going to maintain our faith, how we're going to protect it from external influence so that it's not compromised either. See, all of these maintenance issues that Nehemiah addressed in chapter 13, they were related in some way, shape, or form to being different, to being distinct, to being set apart. Separating from the people of the land and observing the Sabbath and limiting marriage to, the people, of, to, to people of like faith, they were all policies God instituted to help his people maintain their distinctiveness, to maintain their holiness. Because God had told them in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 26, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And you know what? He says the same thing to you and I today because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The expectation is, we're going to be different. We're going to be strange. We're going to be unique. We're going to stand out. But if you don't do the proper maintenance, that can never happen. So I want to close with the story of Spookly the Square Pumpkin. I'm sure many of you have heard the story of Spookly. As the title suggests, Spookly was not your normal shaped pumpkin. Instead of being round, he was square. And his irregular shape led to the other pumpkins making fun of him and prevented him from rolling around like all of them. But little did he know how important it was that he was different. Because one day a massive storm developed with winds that pushed the round pumpkins around. But Spookly's square shape was to his advantage that night because it kept him from budging when the winds blew. Eventually, disaster struck, and the wind, winds blew so hard that they broke the pumpkin patch's fence, which resulted in some pumpkins rolling out of the patch and into a rushing river. When Spookly realized what happened, he jumped into action. He managed to flip himself over and over until he was blocking the hole in the fence. And then he was able, with his unique shape, to plug that hole and prevent any other pumpkins from being lost. I mentioned Spookly's story today because I think it serves as a good metaphor for the importance of us being different. The fact that Spookly was made different than the other pumpkins was precisely the reason he was able to save them. And by being different, by not conforming to this world, by not being stained by this world, by not being friends with this world, 
We have the ability, the opportunity, and the responsibility to save others. But you can't do that unless you're willing to be different. And so this morning, as we conclude our study of Nehemiah and Ezra and Nehemiah, and all the construction that we've used as metaphors throughout this study,